Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. This is episode 27, Game Changer. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. In this episode, we will be discussing the footprint evidence that was such a significant part of the Crown case. But firstly, some feedback. Over the months, I've received a number of emails and messages. Thank you. It is always interesting to hear what I'm doing right and wrong. And in this instance, they've all been positive, which is pleasing. From Joe Allen. Hi, Graham and Jeff. Jeez, does the plot thicken. How can our justice system be so, so ignorant to, well, justice? It's beyond understanding. Thank you so much for your continued search for the truth. This is my favourite crime podcast by far. Excellent work, gentlemen. Thanks, Joe Allen. This is from a listener in Cairns. Hi. Just wanted to let you know that I have been very impressed by the work you have done here. You may recall episode 18, called A Noble Cause. I wondered aloud whether because of the extraordinary number of irregularities that were surfacing in the police evidence, had a rogue officer tampered with the crime scene. This reply came from someone who was in the midst of the case and knew all the players. They said this. No, certainly not a noble cause. He was too stupid for that. I know a noble cause case. It was straight-out incompetence. Pressure from above? Pressure on the Sockos by the detectives and superintendents that were overseeing it. Pressure to prove it was Max. Pure tunnel vision. Clearly miscarriage of justice. You may recall a retired detective previously commented he did not see evidence of corruption, but did see evidence of incompetence. Thanks for your feedback. I'm always interested to hear what the listeners think. And now for some exciting news. I'm taking this opportunity to unashamedly promote my new podcast. It is called Bring Home Sandrine. I am really excited about it. Episode 1 dropped a few days ago on 2 January 2023. I have been busy, believe me. You can find the podcast in the same place you found Loose Ends and my other podcast, Who Killed Leanne Holland. I have attached a link to Bring Home Sandrine to the show notes in this episode, if that helps you find it. Bring Home Sandrine tells a true story of Sandrine Jordan, a 38-year-old mother of three who vanished in July 2012 from Caboolture here in Queensland. She remains missing to this day. 
It is a missing person case with a twist. A case that has received very little media attention and it deserved much more. Please have a listen if you would. And please rate and review the podcast for me if you would. Rating the podcast increases its media awareness and thereby increases its profile. If you live in South East Queensland or you know someone who does, perhaps they may even hold the missing piece of evidence that can help bring home Sandrine. I do look forward to your feedback. Over the Christmas break, I researched the names of the top investigative journalists in Australia. I identified six. The majority of them are Walkley Award winners. They are at the top of their game. I was able to email or message five of them. I sent each of them a two-minute audio clip of the podcast, Loose Ends. If that audio grabbed their interest, I invited them to listen to five selected episodes of the podcast. I felt asking them to listen to all 27 might be a bridge too far. As many of you would be aware, Max Seeker is universally hated, and with justifiable cause. You do not brutally murder three young people for no apparent reason, or as it seems, for jealousy and revenge, and get to be a pin-up boy. But here is the thing. This podcast is not about Max Seeker. Certainly, he is in the middle of it, but the podcast is not about him. It is not about getting him out of prison or exonerating him. I have never met the guy. Why would I? I am a storyteller. And boy, what a story. And the story has evolved significantly in the 18 months that I've been involved in it. When I first started this podcast, I simply expected to tell the story of how Max Seeker murdered those children and what a terrible crime it was. And perhaps we as a community could learn from his actions and maybe help prevent it happening again. Domestic violence against women in this country is at epidemic levels, but is mostly ignored. It happens that frequently most people are numb to it. Currently, a woman is murdered more than once a week in Australia in a domestic situation or by a domestic partner. And the Singh murders were portrayed as a domestic violence event. Except, as I pointed out in an earlier episode, the circumstances of the murders were at odds with the Australian domestic violence murder statistics. When I was considering a name for this podcast... I wanted to call it the Max Seeker Murders. But some killers look for that notoriety. I did not want to give Max Seeker infamy with his own brand name. I was concerned by the loose ends I was seeing in the investigation as I probed it, and the podcast name was born. When I started this podcast, I did not expect to report evidence on crucial witnesses not being called at trial, or evidence buried by the Queensland Police Service. I did not expect to report significant evidence contradicting the Queensland Police timeline of the murders or material contradicting the crucial footprint evidence. I did not expect to report significant evidence contradicting the so-called murder weapon or the many irregularities in the police evidence. And what is the story now? It's this. Has justice been truly served here? Have we as a community 
been properly served here? Were the three Singh children properly served here? Is the killer rightfully behind bars or has this case been a screw-up of monumental proportions? Are we looking at a miscarriage of justice on an epic scale? Please put aside the thought for a moment, but the court found Max Seeker guilty of the murders. The majority of what I've reported in the podcast only surfaced since the trial. And my reason for contacting the journalists, I am hoping one of the best and brightest investigative journalists in the country will put a blowtorch to all the material that has come out since the trial and give a factual reckoning of it, to fact-check it, if you will. I am not sure exactly what I am reporting on here. I have suspicions, but I'm just not sure. So I would like an independent, credible journalist to look at it and to make comment. Jeff Johnson conducted an in-depth investigation of the case for judicial purposes. He focused on the evidence that was given at trial and would be given at trial. My podcasts is an in-depth reporting of the circumstances of the murders, the police investigation and the trial for public consumption. Together with Jeff Johnson's investigation, the two represent a comprehensive analysis of the entire case. The most comprehensive analysis of this case, or in fact most murder cases, I am aware of. And this was not planned, it just happened. Jeff was doing his thing, I did mine, and here we are. And I expected an investigative journalist, a Walkley Award winner at the top of their game, would trip over themselves getting to look at this case. And because Max Seeker is universally detested, I expected most journalists may be cautious about getting involved in the case. But I also expected the journalists would be professional enough to at least have a look at the possible new evidence that exists. I expected any journalist worth their salt would put aside any personal prejudice and look at the potential evidence. That is their trade, after all. That is what they do for a living. Only one journalist has commented to this time. A multi-Walkley Award-winning journalist at that. He said to me, I will not lift a finger to help Max Seeker. He could not see past his personal prejudices. This story is not a Max Seeker love fest. I have not heard from the other journalists I have contacted yet. I'll keep you updated. Once again, I am joined this week by Jeff Johnson, pro bono solicitor for Max Seeker. Hi, Jeff. Welcome back. I previously explained the footprint evidence in episode 17, Impressions Count, but you are going to go into it in more detail again, yeah? Uh, that's correct, Graham. And there's just a couple of further matters of relevance, including reference to those photographs that you've now put on the Facebook page uh, that I want to refer to. Sure. My friend, interesting opening. Let me make a couple of comments. First, over the past five episodes, it should be noted that there has been no contact from the Attorney-General or her advisors, police, lawyers 
or journalists taking issue with any of the matters that I have raised. Maybe given the support provided by transcript, statements, documents and expert opinion, they might find some difficulties. Second, as you would expect, I have visited Max Seeker in prison on many occasions. Given the extent of the matters raised by the petitions, most would not find that to be unusual. Outside his family members and prison officers, I may know him better than most. Suffice it to say I remain involved and will remain involved until someone in authority convinces me otherwise. That may require the Attorney-General to emerge from behind the Iron Curtain created by the Holzinger decision and reveal the reasons for her refusals to refer. Hmm. Let's see if this Attorney-General has the courage to uphold the interests of justice in Queensland and provide answers to the serious matters I have raised by testing those matters before the Court of Appeal. Thirdly, before delivering the initial voluminous petition, I had the privilege of having access to a person who was a retired appeal court judge in another jurisdiction. Old age does have some advantages, not many, but some. Contacts made over a lengthy legal career can be an advantage. For over an hour and a half, we debated the grounds raised in the petition. At the conclusion of the debate, my friend made this comment. Jeff, if what you have said stands up, then it is a lay-down misere. Try to have the Attorney General meet with you to discuss the petition. To hear you explain the grounds and speak to the issues is compelling and important. Graham, as you are aware, I have invited the Attorney-General and her advisers to meet with me repeatedly. Those requests are simply ignored. That is another reason why, after 50 years, I decided to participate in your podcasts. Fair enough. Um, and as you heard in the opening, you know, I've reached out to journalists as well, so we'll see what happens, eh? It'll be interesting. I certainly welcome any scrutiny of the work I have done on the matter since the beginning of 2018. Of course, the proper body is to provide that scrutiny is the Queensland Court of Appeal, not some journalists who might have other agendas. That scrutiny can be accomplished by the Attorney-General simply referring the seeker matter to that court for review. And therein lies the problem, Jeff. I think. We may have trouble getting the Attorney-General to refer it. She'll be dragged kicking and screaming, perhaps, <laughs> to the court. We'll have to wait and see. And let me say, if these 27 episodes enliven the interest of a objective, well-balanced journalist who has past history in being able to investigate and report reliably on complicated matters such as this, I'm all for it. I've got nothing against journalists. They have a job to do. Sure. I was going to say, and I have no problem handing over everything that you have found, that I've found, and letting them tear it apart. Nor do I. And good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll share this with you. Quite a number of years ago now, uh, I had a friend who was the editor of a newspaper 
uh, from one of the media giants. It was part of the larger stable of one of the global media giants. He and I'd have lunch from time to time. Uh, we'd have enlivened discussions concerning various issues of the day. During the course of those discussions, he made a comment, and he did it deliberately, and it has stuck with me ever since. And what he said, Graham, was this, quote, the boss doesn't pay us to tell the truth. We are paid to sell newspapers, close quote. And I was a bit taken back, but maybe I was just naive at that stage. And it probably that has comment, not changed. Well, probably not. That comment was made over an enjoyable luncheon and in confidence. He was a mate. I have respected that confidence until now. He is many years past, and I think he would willingly release me from that bond if he was here today. After all, he was simply, in all probability, stating the truth. Yes. So, Graham, given the expressed hatred of Max Seeker, I just have doubts that you'll find a journalist that would be fair, balanced and objective. Such an approach might not sell newspapers or advertising space. You know, maybe an organisation such as the ABC who is funded from public funds may take some interest. And I hope that I'm proved wrong. I'll be the first person pleased if I am. That just explains my scepticism, if you like, with respect to that issue. We'll have to sit back and wait and see what happens, Jeff. We will, mate, with interest. Okay, let's get to the substance of today's episode. Okay. Graham, you addressed the footprints and the testing that I organised with the research team at Bond University in Episode 17, Impressions Matter. Correct. And that was a great episode. It included a recorded discussion with Professor Rob Orr, who headed up the research team at Bond. During this episode, we will refer to snippets from episode 17. Please excuse repetition, but it is necessary at times to allow me to impart an understanding of how the results of the Bond research might impact the Seeker case legally. If any of your listeners have not already listened to episode 17, I would encourage them to do so. In reviewing the transcript from the trial, the Stocko who headed up the initial forensic team on the 22nd of April 2003 observed an impression on the bottom step. The officer cut out the carpet from the bottom step and sent it for testing. We'll refer to this impression as impression two. Importantly, she observed no other impressions on the carpet, either at the base of the stairs or on and up the stairs. Impression number two was light yellow in colour. It was not blackened. The chemist at Queensland Health tested the piece of carpet cut from the bottom step and found evidence of bleach. Looking at photographs of the carpet, you could not seriously dispute that once the carpet from the bottom step was cut out, the carpet on and up the stairs was ruined and would need to be replaced. I couldn't agree more with that. It seemed to me when I first read that, I thought, well, why didn't they cover the whole carpet throughout the entire house if they were concerned about the integrity of the carpet? I agree also. And 
I mean, you and I have the benefit of being able to look at, you know, hundreds of photographs. And many of those photographs include photographs taken of areas upstairs where there's significant carpeting. And the extent of the damage to that carpet is immense. Mm. Uh, to suggest that the carpet could be maintained uh, and reused is seriously beyond my belief. Well, the moment they cut out that piece out of the bottom step, well, there goes the step carpets. Exactly. It makes no sense uh, mm. after that to endeavour to protect it. I think both of us agree on that. Interestingly, evidence was given at the trial that both plastic and newspaper was placed over the stairs on or about the 26th of April to protect the carpet from fingerprint powder. As we just discussed, why? It was already ruined. Yep. In any event, a number of officers with the pathologist Dr. Alumbi gathered at the bottom of the steps on the afternoon of the 28th of April when the covering that is alleged to have been applied was said to be accidentally dislodged to reveal an entire blackened footprint on the carpet at the bottom of the staircase. We refer to that impression as impression one. It is important to note no such footprint was observed by the Socko or her team of officers the 22nd of April when impression two was found. That's the one that was cut out on that day. No other footprint was observed apart from one Socko who claims to have seen some impressions up the stairs that day, but he conveniently fails to point them out to the head Socko or any others in the team and makes no note in his notebook or the notebook of the head Socko. No other impressions were observed on the 22nd of April, and I suggest that the Socko who claims to have seen impressions was perhaps mistaken. Uh, Jeff, it reminds me of the maggot in the Holland case. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> the mysterious maggot, yeah. My podcasting mate, uh, Jamie Pultz, he'll be, when he's listening to this, he'll be shaking his head, the, the maggot's raised <laughs> its head again. <laughs> Except it's a footprint. Ah, yes. Exactly. Over the many years that I've practiced, it's been my experience that when witnesses make statements prior to and in giving evidence at court, designed to fit a narrative rather than to simply record the facts, subtle changes in what they say at various times can be telling. The truth is the truth. I mean, we all make mistakes and sometimes there's memory failure. But invariably, I have found with witnesses, if they're giving me statements or they're giving evidence in court, they generally can recall the basic facts in relation to the evidence that they're giving. Mm. Remember what I've said in an earlier episode about going to the documents, because what I'm about to outline is an example of documents failing to support evidence given by witnesses in court during yes. the secret trial. And I'm suggesting that that's because the real facts have along the way got lost in endeavouring to fit the police narrative. I'm open to being proved wrong about that, but so far 
Nobody has attempted to do so. So let me take you to some of the witnesses relevant to the blackened footprint narrative, statements they gave in preparation for trial and evidence given at trial. Let me start with the Socco who called the meeting of police officers and Dr. Alumbi at the crime scene for the afternoon of the 28th of April 2003 when the miraculous blackened footprint appeared. This is the same Osoko that gave evidence of taking a photo of the mobile phone of a workman on the 29th of April when the date on the phone, once enhanced, shows the 28th of April. Graham, I've discovered some other issues relating to that which listeners will find uh, very intriguing, but I'm saving that for the next episode because of the sheer content of what is involved with the footprint evidence in this episode. Good idea. This is also the same Socko that, along with Detective Zitney, found the garden fork on the 5th of May 2003, like two weeks after the murders were alleged to have been committed. Yes. This is the same Socko also that took videos and photographs on the days following the bodies being found, but took no photographs of the barbecue in the garage area, behind which the pitchfork miraculously appeared on the 5th of May 2003. This is the same Socko also that refused permission, allowing another Socko to search the garage despite that Socko requesting that permission on three separate occasions. Why? Listeners can form their own conclusions. In his principal statement, this Socko said, Jeff, as you know, we're doing a lot of voiceovers in this episode, so to save the listener getting confused by half a dozen different voices, I'm going to read out all the voiceovers. In the afternoon of the 28th of April... I called a forensic briefing with all the investigators involved with the case regarding the status of the forensic investigations at the crime scene. I also requested the government pathologist, Dr Alumbi, to be present as well. The reason was to show the investigators the level of work required to be done in the crime scene and to advise of the status of the examination to date. Dr Alumbi, in giving evidence on the 30th day of the trial, says... I was told that there was a different team of investigators and that's why they had to go through it again. Really? That appears to me to not be supported by the evidence. Those present at this afternoon meeting were Detective Inspector Condon, Detective Senior Sergeant Patton, Detective Sergeant Zitney, Detective Senior Constable Newman and Detective Senior Sergeant Graydon. All bar Graydon appear to have been involved throughout from the time that the bodies were discovered. Why was Graydon there? He had nothing to do with the investigation as far as I can see and he recorded in his statement the following. Throughout my involvement I concentrated largely on administration and logistic matters such as coordinating staff, overtime and rostering. Why was he there? Perhaps to find the miraculous blackened footprint. If that was the case, he succeeded. 
Although he does not appear to have given evidence at trial, in his statement he also claims that he was the officer who first saw the blackened footprint. That's impression one. Oh, and the forensic briefing referred to by the soccer. Well, what did Dr. Alumbi say in evidence about that? So there was nothing in particular, in addition, that I should say came out. Graham, one must question why this group gathered in the afternoon of the 28th of April at the crime scene. It's not unusual, Jeff, for investigators and SOCOs to have frequent meetings in the crime scene. What is unusual is for the forensic pathologist to be there. His job was finished after he conducted the post-mortems on the victims, unless he wanted to inspect the spa bath or something. But he doesn't say that in evidence, and I think you can read from what he said in evidence he had no idea why he was called there. In reviewing the transcript, I was attracted to statements made to the court by Mr Richard M, the chemist that tested impression 2 on the piece of carpet cut from the bottom of the stairs. He said when questioned about testing impression 1, the following. I have never set eyes on that item, and later he said I have never been allowed anywhere near foot impression 1. Why, one must ask. In examining the evidence, I noted. One, there was a significant distance between impression 1 and impression 2 on the bottom step. That partial blackened impressions had appeared on some of the stairs ascending the staircase. That there was also considerable distance between those impressions. That in photographs RC378 and RC379, there are blackened boot prints depicted on steps two and three of the staircase. Those photographs were taken by the same Socko that said he took the photo of the phone and who called the meeting for the afternoon of the 28th of April. It seemed from the evidence that Sergeant Darren S. may have made those boot prints. Six, on checking the evidence of Darren S., I noted that he told the court that he had made the impression of the boots on the morning of the 29th of April. He suggested that the blackened footprints detected on the 28th, developed because of the amount of fingerprint powder in the atmosphere. But the judge noted in his summing up the following. No development of that hypothesis as an explanation for the blackened foot impressions. Darren S said, You can't get an impression without something being there. So something has to be there for an impression to develop. His honour was correct. There was no development of the hypothesis that there was fingerprint powder in the atmosphere as an explanation for the blackened footprints. It was suggested that fingerprint powder in the air might have crept in under the plastic and newspapers said to be covering the carpet and attached itself to the area of the so-called bleached prints. Seriously, my thought when I read this was and elephants might fly. A more likely explanation seemed to me to be that fingerprint powder was already on the carpet when some person stepped on the carpet with bleach on their feet or on a sock and made those blackened impressions. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. That might explain what Darren S. had told the court. You can't get an impression without something being there. There was no fingerprint powder flying around at the time of the murders, was there? You might be starting to draw your own conclusions. I had my suspicions, but then I'm old and cynical. That's incredible evidence, Jeff. Well, Graham, I was troubled by this. I knew Professor Robin Orr, who headed up the tactical research team at Bond. I discussed with him the possibility of conducting some tests in a secure environment. I was particularly interested to see when, if at all, discernible footprints might appear in various scenarios. I obtained carpet as close as possible to that on the Singh stairs. However, that was not critical to the results obtained from the tests. The tests were conducted in a secure locked environment and the results in summary were as follows. 1. No discernible footprint appeared during or up to eight days after a socked or booted foot was placed in a bucket of concentrated bleach or coated with massage oil and then applied by stepping on the carpet. 2. When strip three of the carpet was covered with newspaper and plastic sheeting. After walking on it with bleach-soaked socks and then fingerprint powder distributed in the air, no discernible footprints appeared. 3. Strip 2 was left uncovered and exposed to fingerprint powder disseminated into the air. No discernible footprints appeared. That is, no fingerprint powdered on the area where the bleach sock or boot had been applied. 4. When the carpet had been directly exposed to fingerprint powder distributed in the air and then a bleached or oil sock or boot used to step on the carpet, discernible prints appeared. I'll just repeat 4 because I think that is just so significant. When the carpet had been directly exposed to fingerprint powder distributed in the air and then a bleached or oiled sock or boot used to step on the carpet, discernible prints appeared. In other words, exactly the opposite to what the police claimed happened at 20 Grass Tree Close. Result 4 reflected my concerns and for me confirmed what Darren S. had said in evidence, that there had to be something there for impressions to appear. The trial judge saw fit to state in his summing up, maybe he was a touch concerned about that lack of development. I don't know, but I know I was concerned. So with Bond Uni, we tested the hypothesis. The result was simply that fingerprint powder needed to be on the carpet before somebody with bleached feet or sock stepped on the carpet. It was only then that those blackened footprints appeared. 
as a result of the testing, would conclude that the prints were made after the Socos had dusted for fingerprints, that being so, those blackened footprints could not have been made by the killer. The two footprint experts called by the Crown didn't address that aspect of the evidence, did they, Jeff? Two were called by the Crown, one from Canada. Bottom line was they concluded that they could not exclude the possibility that Max Seeker made the impressions, but could not exclude the possibility that those impressions could have been made by others whose feet have similar characteristics. That took the matter nowhere, unless the hypothesis was developed to explain the blackening of those footprints. The Bond report develops that hypothesis, and the result is a finding that fingerprint powder had to already be there before the carpet was stepped on. You had a a great discussion with Professor Rob Orr for Episode 17, Graham, and I'm sure you agree that what I have set out to inform new listeners or to remind those that have listened to Episode 17 is accurate. Jeff, it took my concerns over some of the evidence I was looking at to the next level up. I will now refer to some photos of the foot and boot impressions where the evidence appears to conflict with the truth, that is, the facts. The particular photos that I wish to make reference to are the following. RC347, foot impression number one. RC352, showing fingerprint powder on the carpet. RC376, showing what appear to be boot prints on the upper stairs, but more importantly, showing three stairs between impressions seven and eight. RC378, boot print and carpet damage. RC379, boot print. RC386, boot prints. RC400, the earmark on the internal garage door and the sticker showing the 28th of April 2003. RC410, the earmark on Neilma's bedroom door, again showing 28th of April 2003. I've included RC416, which is the photo of the phone, but that in reality won't become relevant until the next episode. The numbering on those photographs are important. The Socko who took those photographs stated in evidence at the committal hearing that his photographs prefixed RC were in chronological order. He said... This was a question and answer during the trial between De Carlo and the Socko. De Carlo... Well, do your photos, that is the RC ones, do they have any chronological sequencing? I mean, as you look at them, as they go up from 1 to 400 or something, whatever, 500 I think and something, is there a chronological sequence to those or were they just given numbers at some later stage? Answer, I believe they're in chronological order. The photos of the earprints, RC 400, and RC410 have stickers displaying the date 
28th of April 2003. Also in his statement, the Socko says, I placed a scale sticker next to the earprints and photographed them. The first was a left ear and partial face located on the garage side of the garage to the laundry door. The other earprints were both right earprints on the outside of Neilman's door. And later, I am able to present these photographs marked RC 395 to 4112. And the Socko says in his statement, this happened on the 28th of April 2003. Now, RC 376, 379 and 386 show the boot prints that were apparently made by Darren S. Certainly he claims to have made boot prints at the request of the Socko. He said in evidence that he made them on the morning of the 29th of April Yet clearly, they were taken by the Socko RC before he photographs the earprints on the 28th of April. Given that the numbered bootprint photos are earlier in the chronological scale, you could conclude, I suggest, they were taken on the 28th of April also. How could you do otherwise? Photograph RC376 also has other significance. You will see the distance between impression 7 and 8 is three-step. All other impressions are equidistant covering two steps. You could note the distance between impressions 8 and 9. Try taking three steps at a time. I suggest it is extremely difficult and that the difficulty increases when the initial step, impression 7, is from a curve from the lower level of the staircase to the upper level of the staircase. Now, what did the Socko have to say? Well, he changes his statement. In his first statement in September 2004, he says, The newspaper that had been placed on the stair carpet was also moved and revealed there were a number of other foot impressions on the carpet going up the stairs. These footprints appeared to be evenly spaced and were sequential in their cadence, in a left and right sequence. They appeared to be of similar size. I formed the opinion they were probably made by the same person. By the 26th of March 2007, it had obviously come to the Stocko's attention that this statement was incorrect. Does he follow up DNA testing of the footprints? Don't think so. Certainly no one at the forensic lab appears to have been allowed near impression one. Why? All he does is change his statements. Four years after the murders, he then says... In paragraph 73, I describe the located footprints evenly spaced and sequential in a left-to-right-to-left manner. The footprints do appear to be evenly spaced on the lower level of the stairwell. However, on the return section from the landing to the second floor, there is a gap of three stairs, making the journey not an even one. I still maintain that they appear to be made by the same person due to their sequentiality. These were the footprints that miraculously appeared on the 28th of April 2003. 
This Zocco had taken numerous photographs of the stairs and the impressions. He had measured and photographed the impressions against a slide rule. This was a game changer for police. Yet the Stocko and the other senior police at the meeting on the 28th of April apparently failed to note that the distance between impressions seven and eight is three steps and out of sequence with the other impression. They would have been all over this miraculous discovery. As was said in the Bond Uni report, it's indicative of there being more than one person involved in the making of those impressions. Seems like a reasonable explanation to me. And further to that, as far as I can ascertain, the photographs of the boot prints, RC378, 379 and 386, were never tendered in evidence. Listeners will recall that the results from the Bond Uni testing was that the blackened boot prints appeared almost immediately when the boot was applied directly onto the carpet after fingerprint powder was applied. Makes sense, one would think. What did Darren S. say in evidence about the photographs of the boot prints? He denied any existed. Let me take you to some extracts from his evidence. This was an exchange between Barrister DiCarlo and witness Darren S. DiCarlo. What did you do? Answer. I took some massage oil, applied it to the sole of one of my shoes, and made an impression on the bottom step. DiCarlo. All right. When did you do that? Answer. I think, I believe it was the 29th of April. DiCarlo. And did it develop? Answer. Yes, it did. All right. And developed over what period of time? Answer. I'm not exactly sure but I did receive reports that it did, in fact, develop. It was over perhaps several hours to a day, maybe. I can't be sure exactly. DiCarlo, can you assist me with whether there was any photos or any records taken of this process that was adopted to try and achieve? Answer, beyond what I'm telling you, I think not. It was merely to see whether we, in fact could achieve a development of a shoe sole impression in those conditions. DiCarlo, can you assist me with anything that was done to record this process? Answer, well, no. DiCarlo, all right, so I don't get to see any of that either. Is that what you're saying? Answer, well, if you mean, was there a photograph I can produce? No, there isn't. Well, Graham, of course, there were photographs. The listeners will be able to observe the photographs of those boot prints themselves. The prosecutor, despite Darren S. denying any photographs existed, failed to re-examine him concerning that matter and at no stage took him to the photographs which clearly show the boot prints on the carpet. That's simply ignored. Had the defence known of the photographs of the boot prints, one, because the numbering would have disclosed that those photographs were likely taken on the 28th of April, not the 29th of April, and two, it would then have been obvious that the impressions appeared immediately, both the evidence of Darren S and the evidence of the Socko 
with respect to those boot prints would have seriously been brought into question. Now, the matter is even complicated further when we have reference to a further document, and that document is a job log entry at 20.44pm on the 27th of April 2003. The following note from that job log says, Sergeant L conducted test of the carpet to determine whether foot impressions could be developed on the carpet. A piece of carpet used as test and footprint placed on it and treated with ninhydrin. Subsequently, checking of the test carpet revealed no prints developed. Having checked the trial transcript, this was not raised by either the prosecutor or the defence at trial. So as has been detailed in episode 17 and now this episode, there's a gathering of senior police officers with the government pathologist to witness the miraculous discovery of blackened footprints. Senior Sergeant Graydon claims in his statement to have been the officer that first saw the blackened footprint, but he's not called to give evidence. Sergeant L did give evidence, and he claimed to be the person. What he said in evidence was as follows. I looked to my left, and there appeared to be what, or what appeared to be, footprints on the carpeting going up the stairs which did not appear to have been there prior to the plastic sheeting being put down. And later, as soon as I saw that, I indicated to Soco RC and to the other detectives that were there at that particular time. Why might this be important? Well, what possible reason would Officer L have had for testing carpet at night time on the 27th of April? to see if foot impressions could be developed on the carpet at 8.45pm the day before the blackened footprints are found. Really? Please somebody explain this to me. It makes no sense. Well, maybe it does. Why would Officer L want to know whether or not the application of ninhydrin to the carpet cause a footprint to appear on the very night before those blackened footprints appeared? Could one assume he was testing to see what might cause a footprint impression to appear? That's what the briefing note says. Ned Hydron did not, but we know from the Bonduni tests that direct contact where there's fingerprint powder on the carpet will produce that impression. And miraculously, Officer L, contrary to what Officer Graydon said in his statement and what the Socko said in evidence at trial, claimed to have discovered the blackened footprint on the afternoon of the 28th of April. In evidence, the Socko, who called the meeting, said this about the gathering on the 28th of April. That afternoon, I conducted a briefing with the executive, which included Inspector Condon, Senior Sergeant Patton, Senior Sergeant Graydon, Sergeant Zitney, Detective Norman and the Government Pathologist. Now who's missing? Officer L. Why is he not included with those listed as attending the meeting? The Socko continues. During that meeting then, at the base of the stairs, in between Detective Patton and Detective Graydon, a section of newspaper and acetate sheeting had been removed and it revealed a full left footprint 
on the carpet. Now, that is not what Officer Earl says in his evidence. He said... So probably about midday to one o'clock, I began lifting the plastic sheeting. We didn't need to do any further chemical treatment, so I lifted that to make it easy so that we were able to walk up, up and down the stairs and move around. We still used the newspaper to prevent any damage by powdering. And a bit later, there was a walkthrough conducted that afternoon by certain members of the investigative team. They came through. They all had the appropriate protective gear. Approximately, I think it was about 4.20 that afternoon, we were having a discussion, myself, the other detectives, at the bottom of the stairs that we've looked at a number of photographs before. I looked to my left and there appeared to be what, or what appeared to be, footprints on the carpet going up the stairs, which did not appear to have been there prior to the plastic sheeting being put down. And as soon as I saw that, I indicated to everyone who was there at that particular time. Graham, this was the officer that was testing for footprint impressions the night before, according to the briefing note on the 27th of April. He said in his evidence initially, What we did was, we had newspaper, which we placed on the carpet, directly beneath any of the walls that we were going to apply chemicals to. And then over the top of that, we had plastic drop sheeting, similar to what painters use. Unfortunately for Officer L, the SOCO had taken two photographs, being RC-278 and RC-280, on the 26th of April 2003, that clearly show only plastic covering the bottom section of the stairs. Photograph RC-278 can be found on the Facebook page. So when the prosecutor rightfully took Officer L to one of those photos, the following exchange takes place. This was an exchange between the prosecutor and Officer L. Prosecutor, do you recognise what is shown there, Sergeant? Answer, on the lower part of it, the or to the left of that photograph, you've got some of the plastic sheeting that we had down. We didn't place newspaper, sorry. Prosecutor, that's all right. Officer We didn't place newspaper down all the time between the plastic drop sheeting because we found the drop sheeting we were using to be very effective. So when Officer L removes the plastic drop sheet on the stairs, there is no newspaper under that drop sheet. The stairs would have been bared to the world once the plastic was removed. And Officer L is then forced to admit that no newspaper was used. Then if one looks at RC346 and RC376, there are a few sheets, very few, of newspaper that have somehow appeared between the time Officer L removes the drop sheet and the arrival of the discovery sheet. They were certainly not there at midday or 1pm on the 28th of April when Officer L removed the plastic. The Socko in his evidence at trial says, During that meeting then, at the base of the stairs, in between Detective Patton and Graydon, a section of newspaper and acetate sheeting had been removed and it revealed a full left footprint on the carpet. And the prosecutor said, did you make any other observations once that was seen? And the answer was, yes, sir. 
we removed all the plastic sheeting and newspaper and we located a series of footprints going up the stairs. Officer L removed the plastic sheeting at about 12 noon and as I've said, there's no newspaper under the drop sheet. He suggests he then places newspaper. It could not be suggested that the blackened footprints suddenly appeared in the time interval before arrival of the discovery team. Or, well, maybe they did. The Socko says in his evidence that he removed plastic and newspaper. Well, he certainly didn't remove plastic because that was removed by Officer L at lunchtime on the 28th. Listeners can use their common sense to decide what they make of all of this. I know what I make of it. I will make no further comment other than to say elephants don't fly and that what I have outlined combined with the research findings of the Bond team would surely leave any reasonable jury properly instructed with not only a reasonable doubt, but serious doubts that Max Seeker had anything whatsoever to do with the creation of those blackened footprints. And that encapsulates the legal ramifications. Not only was the hypothesis of the blackened footprints not developed, I suggest it was incapable of being developed. If anything, the miraculous appearance of those footprints should, in the light of the Bond report and the matters that we have now highlighted, raise serious concern with respect to the police and the prosecution narrative. Jeff, listening to you tell that story reminds me when I first read the brief of evidence and all the statements and whatnot, and I previously said this, I thought at the time a miracle on Grass Tree Close had occurred, but clearly not. Next episode, just we're, we're talking about the phone or... What I'm intending to do following on from this episode is to then deal with the garage. Oh, yep. Um, and particularly the barbecue uh, and the fact that the fork was found behind the barbecue. There'll be some interesting things that may add to what you've already said about that. There's also the spa bath, and I want to touch on the failure to hear much about the spa bath might have been because it didn't fit the police narrative. So those issues I will look to deal with. And uh, there's another matter that if we have time in the next episode, I'm going to raise for the benefit of listeners, just something that happened very shortly after I delivered the petition, which might indicate that the last thing others wanted was to have Max Seeker proceed with the petitions that I'd prepared. Anyway, if we have time, I'll include that. If not, we'll get to it in, in the episode after that. And that's about it. It occurred to me the other day that this April will be the 20th anniversary of these tragic murders. It will. Let me say, though, Graham, if listeners aren't sufficiently concerned in relation to the matters that we have raised to date as constituting a substantial miscarriage of justice demanding of referral to the Court of Appeal, they're not going to be convinced by that last issue. That's true, but they are yet to hear about the garden fork. I have mentioned it. I have previously <laughs> mentioned it, but they haven't. They haven't heard your version of oh, it. Oh, I love the garden fork. Yeah. yeah. All right. Good talking to you, Jeff. All right. Okay. Good. Thanks, my friend. I, um, 
always good to talk to you. Um, All right. Well, we'll talk again. We will. Thanks, mate. That's it for episode 27, Game Changer. Thank you very much for joining us. And apologies for some atmospheric interference during parts of that broadcast. For those of you who live in South East Queensland, you will know that we've been hammered by thunderstorms this week. Jeff and I have tried several times to record and we just could not avoid some interference. Once again, apologies. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast for me. It does raise the awareness of the podcast and helps others to find the story. If you do like the podcast, please tell your family and friends. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the Facebook page, Loose Ends, Sing Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This episode was written and fact-checked by Jeff Johnson. Jeff also wrote episodes 22 to 26, dealing with the legal aspects of the case. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAS Creator Network. Music, Before I Go, by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening.